0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan.
1: A Chinese proverb goes like this, A wise man makes his own decisions, an ignorant man follows the public opinion. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective.
2: I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest
1: dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us, give us your feedback or questions at christianquestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. Look for the CQ Rewind button on our episode pages. Another companion is all our all new study questions tool, an easy-to-follow, single-page of questions tied to scriptures for a great personal study or for your Bible study group. Check them out by clicking on the Bible study tab on our homepage, and we also do video. Look for new videos for all ages every week at christianquestions.com slash YouTube. So Jonathan, what is the subject matter for today?
2: Well, Rick, our question is, how do I know if my decisions are right? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it?
1: Okay, how do I know if my decisions are right? Folks, think about it. To live is to decide. No matter who you are and what environment you live in, you will most likely be pressed with making an untold number of decisions that have direct influence on how your life will unfold. This can be a scary thought because no one wants to make bad decisions. And yet, most of us don't seriously put in time and effort to be sure our decisions are good. You think, well, wait, how can that be? Much has to do with the way our minds work, social pressure, and our desire for comfort. As Christians, we need to be keenly aware of these challenges because our decisions are supposed to always be in line with God's will, and following in Jesus' footsteps. So coming up in today's podcast, let's face it, decision-making usually means pressure, and most of us don't like pressure. Our first segment begins with some principles that can put that pressure in its place. When we make decisions, how many of them are driven by our personal desires or by peer pressure? Segments two and three deal with How to manage and control these two powerful things, personal desires and peer pressure. And now, what happens when my decisions don't match yours? Yours are obviously wrong, right? (laughs) No. 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 (laughs) They're right, of course. (laughs) Of course they are. (laughs) How are we supposed to get along? Our fourth segment dives into the clear biblical principles that guide this very experience. And finally, where can we find the perfect process for great decision-making? Right here you can find it in our last segment. It's all laid out, and it all makes sense. Rick, how must we
2: think and what must we do in order to keep our decisions in line
1: with all that would bring glory to God? Isn't that the big question? How do we do it so everything we do and say and think and, and proceed with stays in in the context of the glory of God. And folks, we want to rep- reference for you episode 863. Uh, this was a, a, um, a very in-depth look at decision-making. We're going to be looking at decision-making from a different perspective today, but it's uh, the episode name was, So How Do You Make a Decision? Uh, and that episode really expanded on the following decision-making principle, which we're going to use to begin with. This is a quote from Viktor Frankl. Uh, He is an Auschwitz survivor um, and a very, very, very brilliant man. So what's the quote, Jonathan? Between stimulus and response, there is a space.
2: In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Rick, that space, pause and consider. Remember the uh, Old Testament word sila? Yeah, yeah. And that's what that means. You know, that's hard for me. (laughs) <laughs> because I'm very impetuous. Um, but have you known people that take forever, even
1: in the simplest decisions? It drives me crazy. Okay, all right. So they're the opposite of you. Yes. Okay, and that's where the craziness comes in. But the point is that there is a basic mind process that begins all decision-making. First, there's some kind of stimulus, something, uh, some kind of input. And that input evokes a response with Multiple possibilities. Now, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And that's what we're talking about. That's what Mr. Frankel is talking about. And perhaps it might be a small space. And Jonathan, for you, it might be a really tiny space. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But it's a space nevertheless. Here's the key In that space lies the destiny of our decision making. The Apostle James actually teaches us about recognizing and using this space. In James chapter one, uh, he begins by defining the completely the the complete positivity of spiritual input in our decisions. And when you think about it, you want positivity in your in in your decision making process. So this is a really big point. We're going to look at James chapter one verses sixteen through twenty two. We'll do sixteen to eighteen to begin with.
2: Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures.
1: So the idea, first James starts this section by saying, look, don't be deceived. Everything that's good and everything that's perfect comes from above, okay? Inevitably comes from above, from the father of lights. And, you know, one of the things about decision-making, Jonathan, is you want to have light, on the process,
2: absolutely not darkness. Right, that's
1: for sure. So, if you want to have light on the process to be able to see and understand, what better place to go than the Father of Lights for your greatest input? So, we've got that sense, that positivity uh, from the Father of Lights that James starts with. So now he gives us the principles of decision making to be applied as we look at God's will in our decisions. So now we're back, James chapter one, now verses nineteen through twenty-two.
2: This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves." And Rick, after reading that, I I kind of brought a simple summation of that. Number one, keep emotions in check. Mm -hmm. And I really need to remember that. That small (laughs) space, okay. (laughs) Yes. And then second, ask yourself, what is right? Righteousness, what is right? And thirdly, humbly glorify God.
1: Okay, so three very simple, basic processes that can help to actually stretch out the space between the stimulus and the response. And when we give ourselves a little bit more space, we give ourselves a little bit more opportunity for a clearer decision. So those are three really important things. There's something, Jonathan, and I learned a word preparing for this week that I'd never heard before. The word is heuristics. And you're saying, what? As a matter of fact, I mentioned the word to my wife, Trish. And she said, did you make that word up? Because <laughs> I tend to do that. And I said, no, 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 this is a real word. Okay. So, and it, it's, a, it's essentially a shortcut that human beings have built into their decision-making process. It's fascinating to learn about. So we're going to go to a soundbite from what are heuristics from Learn Liberty and just kind of get an understanding of what this, this process, this shortcut, if you will, inside of our minds actually does.
3: Every day you make decisions and judgments. Sometimes you're able to think about them carefully, but other times you make them on the fly using little information. This is where heuristics come in. Heuristics are straightforward rules of thumb that we develop based on our past experiences. They're cognitive tools that help us make quick decisions or judgments. Life would be exhausting if we had to deliberate over every one of the hundreds of choices we make every day. So instead we use our heuristics as shortcuts to make judgments about the world around us. For example, rather than spending time deciding what to wear every day, you might have some default outfits. Or when faced with a lunch menu with too many options, you may opt for what you've enjoyed in the past. Heuristics aren't about making the perfect decision or judgment, just about making one quickly.
1: You know, and, and that's the thing. They're not about perfect decisions or perfect judgment. It's about quickness. It's about convenience. This cognitive rule in your head that's based on past experience,
2: but it's not really thought out. No, though. okay. no. But it, right, give, it, I it
1: it gives you a sense of where to go. It's the default sense of where to go. When I go out to eat, and I'm you know, and I don't want to eat heavy, I'm going to get a Cobb salad. Why? Because I love Cobb salads, and that's my heuristical decision, okay? (laughs) If I want something heavier, I'm going to think about salmon, okay? Those are just two things that are – and I can tell you very clearly I'm a very heuristic-based person, and I have to watch out for that because you can get stuck in a a loop if you're not careful. So we're going to come back to that because that theme actually – Reveals a lot about how we do and don't make good decisions. Back to the James scripture, you know, we read James 1 16 through 22, and there were some several points, especially in verses 19 through 22, that we we really went over in great detail in podcast 863. So, how do you make a decision? But we want to sum them up here, okay? So, these sound principles of good decision making are recounted in James. Uh, The first one is what? Be quick to hear. Be alert and focused to truly understand the stimulus. Very much built on that Victor Frankl quote. What's the second one? Slow to speak. Stretch out the space between the stimulus and response far enough to adequately and appropriately decide on a course of action. What's the third step James gives us?
2: Slow to anger.
1: Okay, slow to <laughs> anger. Use the space to pin anger down. That Victor Frankl quote is so important. To control it and not allow it to be your response, but to be a tool of response only if necessary. And boy, we could spend an entire podcast on that single point. The fourth point from the James scriptures, and these are now from verse 21.
2: Putting aside all filthiness.
1: So establish yourself as having rejected the human default of a sinful and broken basis for decision making. Replace it. And so that's essentially saying, Jonathan, replace the heuristic that you may have in your mind that makes it easy with something that is righteous. Okay, we've got to think about that. And then what's the sixth point that kind of wraps this up from verse 22? Actually, uh, the
2: fifth point, Rick, Well, okay, is,
1: what's the fifth point, as a matter of fact?
2: It is receive the word implanted.
1: Okay, thank you for that. You're e- welcome. Embrace the newer, higher spiritual default for decision-making of enlightened thinking. In other words, embrace something bigger. Receive the word implanted. And now the final point. Prove
2: yourselves doers of the word.
1: Learn to consistently apply those five previous steps. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, put aside filthiness, receive the word implanted, and then do it again and again and again. That gives us a sense of what James tells us about decision-making. So as we wrap up this initial sort of introductory segment, what's our deciphering decision-making point?
2: Every Christian decision should First seek God's influence from above, and then attempt to apply it with patience and thoughtfulness. And that
1: really does echo the things that you were talking about earlier. So this is a basis, an introduction for making good decisions. So we've hardly begun, and already what we would do naturally is being challenged to be completely overhauled. How do we not only introduce
2: these principles but maintain them for a lifetime of decision-making?
0: We've been studying Scripture and discussing how Biblical history collides with world history and today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time. Then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation.
1: The necessity for consistency usually ends up as a sticking point when we're facing the opportunity to lift our lives higher than they once were. It's always easy to start something new as the novelty and excitement are palpable. What's difficult is maintaining when the newness is gone.
2: Rick, it's kind of like a New Year's resolution. Mm -hmm. You get all excited because it's new and soon thereafter you forget. (laughs) You know, an old-fashioned way to remember was to tie a string on your finger. Well, the modern way is to put it in your smartphone, either under reminders or in your calendar. So what I did uh, tonight is I had Jewel remind me at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. every day, do God's will. So I'm constantly going to have that in front of me so that my decisions will be focused on the most
1: important thing. So you're not tying a string around your finger. I am not. Your, My phone is dinging every time. Your phone I'm, I'm is have to dinging. Instead <laughs> of your fingers it. are stringing, your phone is dinging. <laughs> now, I don't do either, so I must be in real trouble. <laughs> but, you know, you, you're right. The, the idea is... You've got to get over the, the the sense of okay, the excitement's gone, so now the the process is gone. We can't go down that road. So how do we be consistent? Um, let's get back to heuristics because this is really important. And they're going to ask in in this next soundbite a really important question about violence in the world. Okay, when you think about violence, are we in a more violent world or a less violent world? Let's let's listen to the to the explanation and the heuristics behind it all. And this is called. Uh, an availability heuristic
3: heuristics play a role in our reasoning about the broader world too as an example consider the rate of violence in the world over the past century is the world more or less violent in the past 20 years than previously heuristic reasoning might lead us to think that the world is more violent today than it has been in the past every day we're confronted with images of tragedy in the news and on social media we might reasonably assume that the world is more violent today than ever before using what's called an availability heuristic. That is, examples of violence that are so readily available we just naturally assume the world is more violent today. But in fact, the world is more peaceful today than ever before in human history. We may hear a lot about violent events, but in terms of raw numbers, fewer people die today at the hands of other human beings than ever before. So that heuristic about how violent the world is, is incorrect.
1: But that's based on availability. When you have the, the, the video clip or the sound bite that gets pay, played a thousand times a day, we get this sense that it's everywhere and all the time. When in fact, it's a repetition. So our mind takes the availability and because something is so incredibly overly available, it puts more uh, value onto it. Not necessarily the right thing to do. It warps our thinking to something that's an error. Right. And so we have to be careful. Just because something is available doesn't mean it's something that should be used in terms of decision-making. I thought that was a really, really good example. So let's get down to this personal decision-making process. So our theme for this segment is to manage personal desires. Now, look, you know, a lot of our decisions are to fulfill our personal desires. I get it. But as a Christian... We gotta be careful about that and we gotta put a lid on that because our decision making needs to be higher. We need to live in consistency with our highest decision making aspirations, which is toward godliness, not toward me. So we're going to talk about King Solomon for a little bit. When Solomon became king, God quote spoke with him in a dream. Okay. And he told him to request what he wanted from God. God gives Solomon this, 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 open door. It says, ask of me anything you want, and I will give it to you. Solomon expressed in the answer from this dream, he's expressed how the responsibility for before him as king was going to be bigger than he thought his capacity was. So here, it is a very condensed version of this particular account. We're looking at First Kings chapter 3. We're going to take verses 9 and 10, verse 12, and verse 14 to just kind of overview what happens in this interchange between God in the dream and Solomon. Go ahead. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your
2: people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this
1: great people of yours? Okay, so he, gets, he starts by saying, God, you, you said I can ask for anything. The thing I want more than anything else is to have an understanding heart so I can judge your people and discern between good and evil. Because I am not capable of judging your people. And so God's response to that, God's reaction in verses 10 and 12 here.
2: It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you
1: before you, nor shall one be like you after. So God says to Solomon, this is a beautiful thing to ask for. I will grant this to you. You will become the wisest man in, in, in the world You will, because that's what you asked of me. You didn't ask for anything else. And then God continues.
2: If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David, David walked, then I will prolong your days.
1: So he adds, okay. Take the wisdom I'm going to grant to you. Take the the understanding heart I will grant to you and follow my statutes and live a very long, prosperous life. So this is decision-making with God first and foremost. Solomon was given a choice as to how to base his life, and he said, I want to do it wisely, godly. He he started off, Rick, with humility. He did. That heart, God just smiled
2: and said, wow, I will— Shower blessings on you because of your heart. Yeah, ah, I love it. And it's, isn't that how we start off when we <laughs> le-
1: learn of the Lord and we want to serve Him? Yeah, you're really setting up, aren't you? Because we, we know what's coming. Okay, so before we get to what's coming, one of the things I think a lot of us don't even realize, even before Solomon had this conversation in this dream with God. He already had a foreign wife because you know, we know that he married all these other women and all that stuff. But before any of this, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 gives us a, a little bit of background that's really important.
2: Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David.
1: So he forms this political alliance marries the daughter of the pharaoh of egypt and people and you know you'll look at that and say well what's he marrying heathen be and god is blessing him hang on okay let's look at some commentary because john gill gives some good good um explanations as to the context of this particular marriage
2: married her who according to ben Gerson, was proselyted first to the jewish religion which is very probable Or otherwise, it can hardly be thought Solomon would marry her. And as the 45th Psalm and the Book of Canticles, supposed to be written
1: on that occasion, seem to confirm. So these other writings seem to confirm that this first wife of Solomon's became Jewish first. And so you get that sense that it was in accordance with God's will. And God could bless that. Again, decision-making with God first and foremost. And you're right. Solomon starts humbly and he's given wisdom because he's making decisions with God first and foremost. Okay, so he's putting aside his desires because he wants to serve God. That's the key here. Okay, we had the availability heuristic. Remember, when something is very, very available, it becomes an easy thing to go to to have to, to give ourselves a vacation in decision making it, because it's like okay it, it's available i know it's got to be true you know it's a, and, it's a quick fix yeah you know and you've heard the saying well if it's on the internet it must be true you oh. know <laughs> you know and, and that's and that's kind of what heuristics does it's something that's really available to us it just becomes it's becomes true because we see it so often there's another heuristic that's called representative heuristic so let's get a sense of what that means
3: Anyone can place too much trust in the mental shortcuts they use to make sense of the world. Take this example. Let's say a person tests positive for a rare disease, one that only one in a thousand people have. What is the likelihood that he actually has the disease? Most of us would say the likelihood is very high based on the test results alone. But what if the results were inaccurate 10% of the time? If the false positive rate is 10%, a common number in medical tests, then it is highly unlikely our patient has the disease. In fact, based on the prevalence of the disease and the test result, we can be 99% sure he doesn't have the disease. This is because the odds of getting a false positive result, 1 in 10, are much higher than the odds of actually having the disease, 1 in 1,000. But in multiple studies, physicians routinely get this wrong, overestimating the likelihood that their patient actually has the disease. Psychologists call this the representativeness heuristic. People assume an individual case is more representative than it actually is.
1: Again, so we assume something to be a picture of truth because we see it and it becomes a, quote, representation of what we assume to be true, but there's much more to the story. So you've got things that are very available, and then you've got something that represents something. And the, the idea of getting to this heuristics, which is a weird word, I admit. I like the word. I just like to say it. Heuristics. <laughs> heuristics. Uh, um, it, it be, we're, we're kind of studying this because this affects how I think. This affects how you think. This affects how every one of you listening thinks. So we have to be aware of these things so we can override them to get to a higher level of decision-making and not just the default level, which is simple. So here's what happened to Solomon. Over time, wise decisions can give way to lustful decisions. Solomon starts marrying those who worship Idols. That's not what he did originally. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 9, we're going to see what happens to him.
2: Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate, should they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away, Rick. Uh,
1: What a disaster that happened. That's for sure. You have this man with this incredible wisdom to be able to judge over God's people, and he starts out, like you said, with such humility. But that wisdom and that ability... Went to his head, and then he started following how he felt rather than what was right in the sight of God, and not good decision making. <laughs> no, not even remotely close to good decision making. It, it was it, it polluted godliness. Rick, remember when Elijah asked, "How long halt ye
2: between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him; but if Baal, follow Him." You know, our touchstone should be God's will. Uh, Decide on the right side. It requires experience and discipline. So keep it up. Don't forget, even when we make mistakes, all things work together for good to those who are called according to the Lord's purpose. So learn from your mistakes and then make better decisions.
1: Yeah, and the key is learning from your mistakes. Not learn from, you know, when you start to do things intentionally and call it a mistake, you gotta be careful. And that has to do with, how we are framing our decisions. So let's look at Solomon now. With his new pattern of decisions making, being ego-driven, he himself, the great, wise Solomon, becomes an idolater. Again, we're in 1 Kings chapter uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 4, and then verse 9.
2: For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him
1: twice. So, you have this horrible, horrible turn of events because a very wise man, a very blessed man, and a very humble man took that wisdom and applied it to his own ego and then figured he was bigger and better and ended up walking away from God. A tragedy. From such incredible gifts from God, from such a wonderful start, decision making based on himself—that's where it got him. Where he's he's lamenting his life uh, at the end. So, deciphering decision making from this segment of, of dealing with our personal desires. Go ahead.
2: To consistently seek out godly decisions is to live a life of principle. When we don't decide to put, when we don't decide to put unrighteousness away. We will only find trouble and despair.
1: Live a life of principle, not convenience, not comfort, not heuristics, a life of principle. And if we don't, we end up finding trouble. A good so- uh, proverb to wrap up this segment. And Jonathan, a lot of these proverbs that we end the segments on, we got from listeners who were, who were uh, contributing um, in one of our social media uh, areas in terms of decision-making. Proverbs 23, 17 and 19. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live
2: in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way.
1: Direct your heart in the way toward God. Don't let your heart envy sinners. And in the next segment, we're actually going to get even deeper into that. It's so important. Even when one is specifically blessed by God with wisdom, there's still danger of deciding on the wrong path. Are
2: there differences in our decision-making approach when it's a group decision and not individual?
0: Learning about your host is always a good thing. Rick and Jonathan both love studying the Bible and sharing their thoughts with you every week. Did you know they've been doing this program for over 20 years? It started as a radio show in 1998. We moved to an exclusive podcast in 2016 and have enjoyed talking to all our listeners all over the world. Plus, these guys are best friends and longtime students of the Bible. That's part of why our Christian Questions team of volunteers and listeners feel like it's a big family. Talk to us anytime and hear over a 1,000 archive programs at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, Let's get back at it. What's next, Rick?
1: For the most part, principles remain principles, whether we are solo in our thinking or part of a larger group. What changes with a group decision are the factors of compromise and understanding. Here, we need to be careful that we don't allow the powerful force of groupthink to subdue principle. Groupthink. Rick, you know
2: when when you had that phrase in, in in the information, I'm like, what is groupthink? I had to look it up okay. because I had never heard of it before, and it's really interesting. The, the definition that I got: groupthink occurs when a group of well intentioned people make irrational or non optimal decisions, spurred by the urge to conform or the discouragement of dissent this problematic or premature consensus may be fueled by a particular agenda or simply because group members value harmony and coherence above rational thinking. I thought, whoa,
1: this can really get you in trouble. Doesn't that sound like politics? Oh, it does. It does. <laughs> you know, and, and actually the next soundbite is going to deal with a little bit with politics. We don't do politics. We don't talk politics. It's talking about just political environment. And it's about heuristics. It's from what are heuristics from Learn Liberty. And it's um, it's talking about heuristics in politics. And this is a place where heuristics exists and thrives to the detriment of all. Listen carefully to how this is, this is, this is framed. This is really, really quite brilliant.
3: Our political views can especially suffer from an over-reliance on heuristics. Just consider how we deal with political issues. We'll often let our political identities and our heuristics about how right we think they are stand in lieu of important details and information we need to have an informed viewpoint. Because our heuristics can so easily lead us to faulty conclusions, it's important to be humble about our views. In light of our fallibility, we have to do something that doesn't come easy we must recognize that the world is an uncertain place and that our judgments about it are often wrong. We ought to listen to opinions we may initially consider wrong or even offensive. Our intuitions are useful, even necessary when it comes to making quick judgments about the world. But that doesn't mean they're correct. Recognizing the flawed nature of your thinking is a bold first step to challenging it. What? Listen? Listen to the people I
1: disagree with? (laughs) <laughs> what are you kidding? But see, that's our political knee-jerk response. But of course, they're wrong because of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. You know, it's it, it, we have all of the reasons all lined up. We have all of our talking points. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you are, you're, you're on. That's what we have. And the 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 great disservice to all is you're not even giving the other side a chance to breathe. Because let's be sensible, folks. People on the other side of what you might think are not all just plain dumb. They're just not. Okay? So find what they see as wise and try and understand it. There's a world of of growth in our decision-making when it comes to being able to look at life that way. And you have to be humble, Rick, to be able to do that. You keep bringing that point up, don't you? But it's so valuable well, in this discussion. And, and so really strong decision-making has to have a lot of humility as a foundation. That's really what it comes down to. So our theme for this segment is to avoid peer pressure while consistently standing in the power of godly principle. So we're going to a new example, Samuel's son's. So the prophet or the the, the judge Samuel in, in back in the Old Testament, his sons were appointed to be judges in Israel, but did not follow God's ways. They weren't good men. The people were unhappy with this, and they complained. So we're going to go to one Samuel chapter eight, verses four and five.
2: Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, "Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways.
1: Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations." So they are unhappy with Samuel's sons, and they should be, but they come to a really interesting conclusion. So Israel wants a king and a new course of action, and it's based on certain facts. Now, these facts were good, okay? Samuel's sons were not doing a good job, okay? They didn't reflect the entire context. These facts did not reflect the entire context of what they should have considered.
2: But they're looking around to other nations, Rick, and they're
1: seeing good things all around them they're seeing what they think are good things all around them and the availability heuristic kicks in and the representative heuristic kicks in you say they all have kings they seem to be thriving we should have one too because your sons are doing such a bad job this is what we want so here's what happens first samuel chapter 8 verses 6 to 7 and then verse 9 this is samuel's reaction and then god's reaction
2: but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel, and
1: Samuel prayed to the Lord. Okay, the, you know, the, the interesting thing is, Samuel, you know the decision-making process of Samuel, because he is just displeased by the whole thing. So it's it doesn't say it displeased God initially, it displeased Samuel, and so he brings that concern to God. You, you see the godliness in his thinking. Verse 7 gives us God's response.
2: The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have
1: not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is the interesting thing. God tells Samuel, I am Israel's king. I am the sovereign. I'm the one who says, you go here, you go there, you go here, you go there. They're rejecting me, not you. You are just a tool in my hand because I'm king. They want a human king instead of, a God, of God as their king.
2: He was the perfect king. <laughs> yeah, How no, many
1: times did miracles and protection and yeah, uh, yeah. what? <laughs> well, you know, and, and they just saw things through that availability and the representativeness of what was around them. And they were looking for a poor decision. Here's what God f- continues to tell Samuel.
2: You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them.
1: So God gives Samuel permission to heed their decision. But he also tells Samuel to disclose the consequences of their decision. Rick,
2: God created the system of judges for Israel, right? Yes. Well, shouldn't the elders have asked Samuel, hey, how could we, how could we improve this? Uh, we've got some concerns here. You know, wouldn't that have been a better approach to say, we've got to fix something. Your sons aren't behaving right. You know, we have to make sure we're getting the right judges for, for the job.
1: So, look, so what you're telling me is just because, you know, you're, you look at things, something from a logical perspective and a godly perspective, you're telling me it's a better perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It would have been. <laughs> but it was about their own sense. It was about the the, the pressure, the the influences around them, and, and then all of their talking saying, we want something different. Because it's not working right now, we want to overhaul the whole thing. Not working right now doesn't mean everything needs overhauling. It means that present circumstance needs overhauling so here's samuel's response he discloses and we're going to condense this because there's a lot to it discloses all of the things that are going to happen when they have a king in first samuel 8 11 to 18
2: he said this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you he will take your sons and place them for himself and they will run before his chariots he will appoint for himself commanders and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make weapons of war He will also take your daughters for perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. He will take a tenth of your seed of all of your vineyards. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself but the Lord will not answer you in that day.
1: So you need CQ Rewind, the the, the full edition, to to be able to to see this, you know, the the show notes here, because you've got to see all of these things that Samuel says is going to happen because God says, look, these are the consequences. When you have a man ruling over other men, this is what happens. All evil consequences are laid out before any group decisions made. God gives them full disclosure. And you know what, Jonathan, a powerful tool against groupthink is truth, and disclosure from a mutually reliable source. Now, God, I would say, is mutually reliable. And Samuel. Through the mouth of Samuel, mutually reliable, God's mouthpiece. So they have this mutually reliable source. They're given everything they need, and yet they're still going to go down that wrong path. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back to that in a moment. We're going to go to a different soundbite. This is from – this is fascinating. This is from the neuroscience of decision-making, uh, Kimberly Papillon, uh, from a TED Talk, uh, Nashville Women. Um, and she's talking about – just to set the context here, uh, this heuristics idea leads us to group biases that we're not even aware of because there are things that are convenient in our thinking. And so she's asking the question, okay, she, she goes through and she proves that these group biases exist. She says, okay, let's look at how young we start with these group biases. Listen to this. This is just fascinating stuff.
4: This should disturb us, that there are groups of people who we are failing to encode as fully human on both scales. We'll have different levels of empathy for them when they're in crisis. We'll allocate resources differently for them. We'll want to create more space between us and them, draw a clear line of demarcation between us and them. But how early does this begin? Let's take a group of nine-year-olds. And let's take nine-year-olds from the north and nine-year-olds from the south. And let's let them listen to a children's story being read by somebody from the north and somebody from the south. On our human encoding scale, first for nice, how do they do? What we find interesting to love, the the nine year olds from the South decide that the person from the South is indeed nicer than the person from the North. And the nine year olds from the North agree yes, all things being equal, they would rather play with the person from the South, right? But what happens for smart? Oh. Now now our nine year olds from the South decide that the person from the North is two times smarter than the person from the south. And the only difference is that the nine-year-olds from the north decide that the person from the north is three times smarter than the person from the south. That's how insidious implicit bias is. It's what's in a name, it's what's in a face, it's what's in a voice, and we have to get control of our brains to do something about it. Just as neuroscience gives us insight into the problem, it also guides us on the solution
1: so so what she's talking about is is the is the internal wiring that somehow says that southern voice is friendlier but not as smart, and you say, "Oh, come on, I'm not wired like that well, you know Jonathan, I'm in a service business, and I had a, a i i do have i've had for many, many years a, a client um, he is an old Italian guy he has got a thick. Thick Italian accent. And your first impression, because he called me Ricky. Hey, Ricky, (laughs) it's good to see you, Ricky. You know, and when I first met him, it was hard to even understand him. And your sense is, and and honestly, your sense is, okay, I'm going to have to go slow with this guy because he's got this accent. Jonathan, he is smart as smart can be. And when I explain services and things, he's a step ahead of me. And I figured this out early on, thinking, Don't let the accent fool you. This guy, he's older, he is wise, and he knows what he wants, and you better be on top of your game because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere with him. And it was a real lesson for me. Just because he's got the thick accent means nothing, and that's what this (laughs) example was. Wow. So we have to be careful because we have these things built in. To ourselves, so let's go back to Samuel and, and Israel and the king. The group response and the group decision, okay? You got the peer pressure and all. First Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. Here's what they decide.
2: And and Rick, this is after the full disclosure, right. right? Right. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out
1: before us and fight our battles. Uh, Who used to fight their battles for them? Wasn't it God? Remember that? (laughs) So they said, no, this is what we want. Here's the result.
2: Now Samuel had heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice
1: and appoint them a king. So God says, let them have what they want. And they end up in all kinds of trouble. And God never revokes that from them. Generation after generation is going to suffer through good kings and bad kings because they forsook their one king. Big, big pressure here. So deciphering decision-making, Jonathan, how do we wrap this one up? Beware of the power and pull
2: of large numbers when involved in a group decision. Always stand in the power of godliness and with the consistency of principle.
1: The consistency of principle overrides peer pressure. Proverbs 21 5.
2: The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage,
1: but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And these folks were hasty and they made a decision that was ungodly and they paid long and hard consequences as a result. You know, it's sobering to realize how easy it is to give in to preconceived notions and choose them over godly actions. As Christians,
2: what about dealing with the decisions of other Christians we might not agree with?
0: We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in Convo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now.
1: This is where we need extra care. Obviously, there are some decisions of deep moral consequence that we need to stand firmly upon without compromise. However, the vast majority of the things we may not see eye to eye on are not that serious, but they are still of vital importance. And Jonathan, this is an important aspect. Sometimes there are things that you have that we need to be uncompromising on, but most of the time, there are many things we may see see differently that are just matters of that's the way you see it, this is the way I see it, and those things don't agree. What do we do now? And so this is this is an important aspect of decision making. How do we deal with that
2: with fellow Christians? It's right, because we don't want to judge improperly right. before God. We we want we want to be accurate with our assessment. And if things are different, but they're okay, all right. It's okay.
1: We're all different. We all are wired different. So some of our decision-making, we've got to go back to the heuristics thing. How much of my thinking is based on that convenience that's sort of like pre-programmed in without me even realizing it? The neuroscience of decision-making, Kimberly Papillion, this TED Talk, uh, she next goes into something uh, called the shoot or no shoot test. Again, this is fascinating. It has to do with racial ideas and thinking, but it's something that was tested and needs to be looked at so we can understand how how it works. Listen listen to this experiment that was done.
4: You see, there are lots of solutions that the neuroscience provides to us, but I believe that the most profound one is based on a test called the weapons identification test, and it's sister test, the shoot-no-shoot test. You can take the weapons identification test online at any time. But here's how the shoot-no-shoot test works. A person pops up on the screen, and they're either holding a wallet, a cell phone, or a gun. A wallet, a cell phone, or a gun. If they're holding a wallet or a cell phone, you say, no shoot. If they're holding a gun, you say, shoot. It's called the shoot-no-shoot test, right? Now, uh, the only uh, thing that you have to pay attention to is that half of the people who pop up on the screen will be African-American and the other half Anglo-American. And you're going to hit the E or the I key on the computer to make your decision to shoot or not shoot. And the computer is, gonna pro- is going to pay attention to two things. First, it's going to measure in milliseconds how much longer it takes you to categorize to one side or the other or say shoot. Or shoot. And second, it's going to measure the number of mistakes that you make.
1: Okay, so this is a, a contest uh, that, or a test, or an experiment rather, that gives you a sense of you've got to make split second decisions. You know, w- wallet, cell phone, or gun, and how do you judge that? Uh, and you'd think that okay, it'd be simple. You just look at the thing and you decide what it is. But our minds have shortcuts, and we're going to get to that as we go into the. Um, a little further down into the segment. So remember the shoot or no shoot contest is uh, putting as as a, as a basis for looking at our next theme, which is to recognize personal preferences. We need to respect the decisions of others who see with different eyes than we do. And and Jonathan, that's you and I. Sometimes we see with different eyes. Sure, sure. And, and you know you gotta. Well, well, we'll we'll talk about what we gotta do as we go through this. We have an opportunity and a privilege to express our Christianity by tolerance and acceptance. Tolerance and acceptance. Now, a lot of times for Christians, you look at that and say, what about principle? We're not, we're not talking about violating principle here. We're talking about tolerance and acceptance on things that we uh, disagree on. Now, some Christians say, well, you know, everything's a principle. Well, no, that's simply not true, okay? It's simply not scriptural. We have proof of that in Romans chapter 14. Let's start with verses 1 through 4.
2: Now, accept the one who was weak in faith, But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands and falls, and he will stand. For the
1: Lord is able to make him stand. So you got the weak one and the strong one being delineated in these verses. And what the apostle is saying is look, the weak one is standing for God, and his conscience is guiding him, and he will be able to stand, even though he doesn't have it right. There's power in that principle. Now, that's the principle that his conscience is being is godly it's not fully tuned correctly but god will take what he's capable of and say i know you're sinful i know you're less than perfect and you're still good enough for me that's a powerful powerful thing the next example is not necessarily contrasting weakness with strength it doesn't mention it in this example but it's contrasting different opinions romans 14 Verses 5, and then we're going to go to verses 7 and 8.
2: One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. For no one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's.
1: So now, in these verses, it doesn't talk about somebody being stronger or weaker. It's just talking about regarding one day above another and other regards every day alike. Now, perhaps this is talking about Jewish Christians, some wanting to you know, keep and keep honor the Sabbath, for instance. Okay. Or certain days of, of ritual and sacrifice and so forth. Now, does it mean that they're weaker? You know, because it's talking about it not in terms of weakness and strength, perhaps there's a sense of, I want to remember my heritage. Mm, okay, that makes sense. You see, we don't know. We don't specifically know enough in these verses to determine exactly what it is. But if it's, A, hey, I want to remember the heritage because, you know, for thousands of years before this, this is how we worshiped God. Now we're stepping up to another, but I want to keep those things sacred. That's not necessarily weakness. So much. So as it's
2: it. choice or differences. Right. And. Okay.
1: And, and the point is, both are living and dying for God, and both are able to stand before God. So you have these differences, these discrepancies amongst individuals, and yet the apostle is saying, you can both stand before God, and here's, here, here's the bombshell announcement, and you can get along. How about that? What a blessing. (laughs) Didn't see that coming, did (laughs) you? You know, and that's part of decision-making. Will I decide to be able to compromise and understand and give leeway on those things that don't matter as much? Uh, Our decisions regarding the differences we have are decisions of fellowship. To decide to accept is to reach out to build up. What if we decide not to accept? Well, the apostle deals with that that attitude, because that's what it is. It's an attitude. Romans 14, 10 to 11, and then 13.
2: But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's
1: way. Okay, why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? And That's why I said the decision not to accept is an attitude. When we regard our brother with contempt, they're not mature enough to understand things the way I do. You know, how can I spend time with them? Well, I don't know, maybe because they're your brother in Christ? Yeah. You know, and and the idea is that what you may be doing to that individual by having contempt is you may be putting a literal stumbling block in front of them because now they're saying, I don't know what I did wrong. I'm, I'm doing the very best I can, and, and they, they see me as second class. That's we got to be so careful about our treatment of one another with these things.
2: And isn't the principle – as you judge, you shall be judged? Yes. And we that, need to be very careful.
1: That is a powerful principle. That's from Matthew chapter seven. Deciphering decision making for this segment, Jonathan, what is it?
2: Our personal decisions regarding those of like faith are profoundly important. We must consider their hearts and minds, lest we end up judging inappropriately.
1: Okay. Consider their heart, their mind, because. They stand before God. They don't stand before Rick. You know, when I make somebody have to stand before Rick, I am wrong. Proverbs 19, 1 to 2.
2: Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is foul. Also, it is good for a person to be without knowledge and it is, I'm sorry, let's do that one again. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he
1: who harries, his footsteps err. Okay, so you, you take your time. The space between the stimulus and the response, it comes back here. So when we're dealing with our personal preferences one with another, take the time in that space to honor and respect your brother. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the shoot or no shoot thing. And, you know, I, I, I'll bet you kind of have an idea of what's going to happen here, but this is the science that reveals something that again is, is, is kind of one of those heuristics that we have because of its availability, because of its potential representativeness that may not, may or may not be real or accurate. We have adopted into our thinking. Here's what happens when choosing the shoot or no shoot.
4: There's some interesting results for the United States um, uh, data that we're able to take in. We find that when the African-American man is holding the gun, people say, shoot, quickly and accurately, no problem. And when the Caucasian man is holding the wallet or the cell phone, people say, no, shoot, as they should. The problem comes in in the other two categories. When the African-American man is holding the wallet or the cell phone, people still say, shoot. And when the Caucasian man is holding the gun, people say, no, shoot, shoot. In fact, in a series of trials, they found that people were more likely to say shoot for the African-American man holding the wallet or the cell phone than they were for the Caucasian man holding the gun. This was disturbing to everyone who had that strong value system for fairness. So the scientists got to work to use the neuroscience to solve the problem, and they figured it out.
1: Now, here's the interesting thing about this. She says people say shoot when they shouldn't or no shoot when they shouldn't. She's not identifying... Okay, the, 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 the Caucasian individuals are are misrepresenting. She's saying across the board everybody is misrepresenting. This is key because I'll bet you thought that, oh, you see, this is showing systemic racism. It's amongst all groups. Why? Because it's that heuristic thing that we have in our heads. Because of the repetitiveness, the availability. You see an image and you see it a hundred times. It's the same thing a hundred times. What's the lesson? The lesson is we need to be careful just because something is always available and always in your face doesn't make it an absolute representation of complete truth. So in our decision making, we have to rise above that knee-jerk reaction. Stimulus- Space response. Important stuff, Jonathan. Important, important stuff. Let's take a take a left turn here for a minute. What kinds of things might hinder our decision making? We've got three things we want to consider. They're from John Maxwell, a Maximum Impact Series lesson called Making Good Decisions Better. And Rick, so these are all negative, right? Yes. These are things. Don't try these at home. <laughs> okay. What are they? The
2: power of procrastination. Procrastination is often disguised as rational thinking. It ends up a welcome response when disguised this way because it feeds our desire for inaction and seems to give us great reasons for doing
1: nothing. Okay, and look, procrastination is an issue and we can all easily have that issue. Procrastination is not a good decision-making tactic. It's a stall because we are worried about the decision. What's the next one?
2: the slippery slope of surrendering when a decision is exceptionally difficult it can cause us to cave in as we have been depleted of so much energy
1: that we lose our will to fight okay so when something is really hard and you've got to gather a lot of things sometimes we just surrender and say oh i don't know forget it i'm just going to do this and we we stop with the process the godly process processing through and gathering the appropriate information for the decision so procrastination not a good idea surrendering because it's too much work not a good idea the third not a good idea is what
2: the inaction of information gathering the necessity of gathering an ever larger pile of information before actually deciding to do something about it
1: okay always have to have more always have to have more there comes a point where there is enough so, in our decision making, how do I know my decisions are right? How do my decisions are good? Are, am I procrastinating? Am I going down that slippery slope of surrendering, or am I just becoming having inaction because i 'm just going to spend all of my time continually gathering more and 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 more and, and, more, and more information. We have to be careful about these things because they can hurt the decision-making and our personal preferences end up getting in the way of our godly thinking. So decision-making is just plain old difficult. So much rides on so many things, we just need to keep looking up. With all these
2: examples showing us what not to do, is there one that shows us exactly what to do?
0: We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app, and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together.
1: Now, it's interesting that finding faulty decisions is so easy. Fortunately, Jesus did show us a simple yet eloquent process for our decision-making that can really take the headache out of a lot of this. The key here will be for us to decide to pay attention and actually, here's an idea, actually follow the advice as it is given. <laughs> I'm serious. It's a great idea and for many of us it's novel. What do you mean I'm supposed to follow the advice as it is given? You know, it's like it's like it's like, you know, cooking a dinner and it doesn't come out quite right. And so you say, "Okay, well where did it go wrong?" And so you say, "Well, did you follow the recipe?" "Well, yeah. Well, well, kind of. Well, I decided I didn't have enough of this and I substituted that for this." Well, 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 hang on. You know, if you wanted the results from the recipe, You need to follow the ingredients in the recipe and its process. Decision-making is exactly the same thing. Now, before we get to the process, and there's a great set of scriptures that lays this out and makes it really easy. Let's get to the resolution for the shoot or no shoot problem because there is a resolution. And the cool thing is it's really simple. Listen to this.
4: See, there's a part of the brain called the rostral anterior cingulate cortex, the rostral anterior cingulate cortex, the R-A-C-C, that turns on whenever you want to do a good job on a test like this. If you can get that part of the brain to turn on, you'll say shoot when you're supposed to say shoot and no shoot when you're supposed to say no shoot. So they had to figure out how to activate the brain, how to literally teach us to take control of our own brains, to turn on the parts of our neuroanatomy that will help us use our value system with particular types of decisions, and they figured it out. They just told people while they were taking the test that they were going to be monitored for race-related bias. No pressure, no pressure. (laughs) And suddenly the RAC lit up. The RACC was critical to the analysis, and people were saying shoot when they were supposed to say shoot and no shoot when they were supposed to say no shoot. So can we self-monitor? Sure we can. We can look at our own decision-making and track it one moment to another and indeed we should and we can also do it systemically where we try to see if there are patterns in our decision making and of course we should
1: so you know the the thing is that you've got this part of the brain the restral interior something something cortex okay and you have to turn it on and so the way to turn it on is to create an awareness of where the deficiency may lie and in this case Okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go through this experiment, but just be aware. You're going to be monitored for race-related bias. What that does is that gets your mind thinking, I'm not biased. i got to pay attention. And, Jonathan, that's the key. The whole key to overcoming this is pay attention to the details. Pay attention. Right. So when you're dealing with somebody who disagrees with you, pay attention to their perspective as valuable. When, when, you're, when you're dealing with peer pressure, pay attention to the fact that just because everybody says it, there may be an, a built-in bias in that, and you need to be aware. And if we just get ourselves to pay attention, we, the whole thing can change. So, Jonathan, what's our theme for this last segment? Attain a patient perspective that uses sound principles, sees
2: beyond personal desire, Peer pressure and accounts for personal preferences.
1: And that takes all of the points that we, we, all of the themes that we talked about previously, and says, okay, all of this has to be done within a patient perspective. How do you do that? Well, long ago, Jesus taught us a profound lesson in awareness regarding our life decisions. This is a profound, powerful lesson. It's in a parable found in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, and we're going to break it up into a whole bunch of pieces because in this parable is the key to the process of being aware so you can make a good decision. This is, this is amazing. Luke 14, let's start with verses 25 and 26. Now large
2: crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple.
1: Okay, so you got the crowds, and now he's, he's going to challenge the crowds. So Jesus' first point is, there is, this decision has a clear objective, okay? the decision, The clear objective is to follow Christ. And the question you have to ask yourself, is this what I really want?
2: And Rick, uh, the point that I really drew from this is, love me
1: more. Right. Because, you know, when it says, hate your father and mother and on and on, it means love less. You know, that's really, really the, the core of the matter. So love me more. If you're going to follow me, that means you're going to love me more than everything else. So this decision has, to ha- has a clear objective. Love me more. Follow Christ. Verse 27 is going to bring us the sec- So you have to have your clear objective. That's the beginning of, dis- of a good decision-making process. Verse 27 will give us the next point.
2: Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me
1: cannot be my disciple. Okay, carry his own cross. That had bad implications for people in those days. So the second point here, are you aware that the cost of the decision before you is completely life-altering? Do you understand that as you approach it? It's life-altering.
2: It's showing a sacrifice to death. Yes,
1: absolutely positively. It's saying it's going to cost you everything. So what are you aware of the cost of your decision? Do you have a first clear objective? Now are you aware of the cost? Verse 28 is going to bring us the third point in a good decision-making process. For which one
2: of you, when he builds a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if
1: he has enough to complete it? Stimulus, pause, response. This is the classic verse that says, sit down and think about it. The third point, time and consideration are paramount. Are you serious about fulfilling this decision? You've got a clear objective. You know that there's a cost. Now sit down and think it through. Count the cost. Count it. Actually count it out. So we've got objective, the cost, time to consider the cost. Now we're going to get on to the fourth point. Luke 14, 29 and 30 is going to bring us there.
2: Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not
1: able to finish. So, the fourth point, what are the resources needed to live with this decision? Will you commit to them? Are you willing to say, okay, this is what I am going to do because the consequences are, you know, you, you end up failing?
2: Follow through.
1: <laughs> okay, it's simple as that. Follow through. Clear objective, understand the cost, take time to consider it, and now decide you're going to follow through fifth point in good decision-making, Luke 14 verses 31 and 32. Or what king, when he sets
2: out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for
1: terms of peace. So Jesus is bringing in another example in this really important decision-making process. And this fifth point is, what level of discipline and tenacity is needed to complete this decision? Am I going to be going about it the right way or the wrong way? What do I need to actually fulfill the objective and the cost and the, the, the time considering it and the resources? Use the spirit of a sound mind. Okay, get your head in gear so that this decision can be really considered in the biggest way possible. And then our last point in this process of good decision-making is verse 33 from Luke 14. So then, none of
2: you could be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions.
1: This last point Jesus makes is, are you willing to pay the price in full? to succeed in this decision. It's your all. Right. That's what it's going to cost. So here's the interesting thing. Jesus gives us all of these steps to be able to make what ends up being for a Christian, for a true Christian, the most singular, most important decision of your entire life. Because the decision to truly follow Christ, it's not the decision to love God. It's not the decision to love Jesus. It's not the decision to be associated with Jesus. It's the decision to be a footstep follower of Jesus, even unto death. The biggest, the most important decision of our lives. And Jesus is showing us here, it requires a lot of thinking. He's showing us, take these principles and use it for the biggest decision of your life. And by the way, the principles exist for any other decision as well. And really, is powerful stuff. You, you that get, is, you get this sense that okay, be clear, be godly, be conscious. Don't be driven by peer pressure or any of those other things we talked about. But follow principles and decide: is this the decision I am willing to follow through because it's going to cost me everything? Last uh, soundbite from the neuroscience of decision making. Uh, again, the 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 um, solution was found in being aware, okay? And because the idea is we want to be, every one of us wants to be a fair-minded person. And here's how she closes. This is kind of cool.
4: The most difficult people to teach are people who value fairness the most. It's the fair people who must take control of our brains. We're the ones that have the motivation, and, and now we're the ones that have the information to go and make the changes that need to be made. It's what's in a name. It's what's in a face. It's what's in a voice. It starts early and it ends late and it depends on you.
1: So those of us who want to be fair-minded, what she's saying is we have to be really careful. We have to step up and we have to be what we think we are by being aware of the things that we think that don't contribute to what we think we are. We think we're fair-minded but we may have – a lot of little built-in biases that we are just not even aware of. And she's saying, open your eyes, be aware, and then be fair. And it's powerful wisdom here. So in our decision making, it really comes down to looking at the things that we just sort of naturally accept in our lives and saying, wait, there's a higher way. A couple of final scriptures, James four, thirteen through sixteen.
2: All
1: such boasting is evil. So the idea is, if the Lord wills, that's the sort of the icing on the cake of decision-making. Okay, I think this is the right thing to do. I'm willing to commit to it. And if the Lord wills, I'll be able to follow through on it and look for his direction. It's a really simple thing. But it's one of the most powerful things to give us the right kinds of decisions. Our final deciphering decision-making point, Jonathan, is... None of our
2: decisions as Christians are to be taken lightly. Godly principles, consistency, personal conviction, and respect for others are all factors that need appropriate consideration.
1: So decision-making is a process that takes time and thought and effort and wisdom and humility and godliness and scriptural basis so that we can do things to honor and please God. Final scripture, Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 6.
2: By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory.
1: So the message of that final scripture is there's power in spreading out the 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 basis for your decision making we need to be abundantly clear that as we go through our lives and have to make the decisions we need to make it's got to be god-based and the best way to do those things is to have others involved that have the same principles as you that to to bounce the idea off of them see what they think and then sometimes there's compromise involved sometimes there's not be careful of peer pressure Be careful of personal desires. Be careful of when we have disagreements because the bottom line is I will be godly and scriptural in all that I say and do. That is what a good decision is made of. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. Decision making is a hard thing and it happens all the time and frankly doesn't get enough attention. Let's think it through. Be a Christ-like decision maker. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, what is the true spirit of Christmas? It's there, it's powerful.